Welcome to this episode of Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0 with Christine Kim and Will Foxley. Join the conversation as the ETH 2.0 Dream Team discuss its live development, its potential impact on the crypto markets, and spotlight major Ethereum news events as they develop. Just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here is Christine and Will. Welcome back, everyone, to Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0. I'm Christine Kim, a research analyst at Coindesk. And I'm Will Foxley, a tech reporter at Coindesk. Today, we're going to be discussing the market implications of a dual Ethereum blockchain and what new reality staking presents to the long-term value and utility of Ether. To talk about this with us today, we've got David Hoffman, the co-founder of Bankless, a content studio aimed at educating audiences about decentralized finance. How are you doing, David? Absolutely fantastic. Really excited to be here. Uh, talking about Ethereum and, and specifically ETH is like my favorite subject, so I'm happy to do it. And your other favorite subject clearly is plants and succulents <laughs> and plant life. David, you have so many plants in your video background right now. Can you tell me like what is your favorite plant and why? Oh, oh you're going to make me choose, huh? Clearly not the yellow one, the one that's dying. That one you don't like very much. Well, that, that's my failure. Uh, I just got this one a second ago, which I, I guess the listeners can't see, but that's a Calathea. And apparently that is an expert level plant. So we'll see if I'm able to keep that one alive. Expert level. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk about one of the other things you are an expert at. And one of the things <laughs> you're so well known for in the Ethereum community. And that is your thesis on Ether, the native cryptocurrency of the Ethereum blockchain being this unique, never before seen triple point asset. You've given presentations, done podcasts, written articles all the way back since October 2019, talking about Ether as the first and only asset in your mind that is this store of value, a capital asset, and a commodity asset all at the exact same time. So I've been reading up on this, and in my mind, I'm slightly confused because mm -hmm. Ether doesn't seem to do any of these three things very well, at least not yet. Bitcoin has been performing much better as a store of value asset than Ether over the last decade. As a capital asset, DeFi is still pretty nascent for users without much knowledge of crypto to rely on, on Ether as capital in the first place, in place of, say, like traditional stocks. And then for a commodity, I mean, ETH, actually, it still gets recycled. It doesn't really get burned, gets paid into the hands of miners. So it's not quite like the one-off, one-time use as like coffee beans or something like that. So if Ether is this triple point asset, my first question to you, David, which I know we're kind of hitting the ground running here. I mean, like, how come it doesn't seem to fulfill or excel at any of these one three suggested use cases. Let's define the three asset superclasses just for listeners to be able to, to get their bearings. The ETH, the triple point asset uh, thesis states that Ether fits into all three asset superclasses all at the same time. And that's what makes it unique. I can't find another asset that does something like this. Those three asset superclasses are store of value. That's like gold. Gold's a great store of value. Real estate is a great store of value. And then there's capital assets. These are assets that produce yearly dividends, like yearly cash streams. Uh, real estate is also a capital asset because you can rent it out and get an income stream from that cash. So it's also a store of value and a capital asset. Classically, equities on the stock market, capital assets, right? But they're supposed to over time produce dividends. Uh, and then there's consumable slash transformable assets, which 
these assets are meant to achieve like a means to an end, right? There's a goal here, like energy would be a really strong, transformable, consumable asset. Um, but as you said, like wheat or, you know, generally any commodity, like you can start with wheat and then you can make bread and bread is more valuable than wheat. And so like the wheat is the consumable asset. Now, when we talk about like, what is a good asset in one of these super classes, store of value, mm -hmm. whatever, we can, we can talk about the qualities of any of these things. Like is gold a good store of value? Is real estate like a good store of value? Is Bitcoin a good store of value? And of course you're, you're asking the question, is ether a good store of value? And really that's asking the questions like, are the store of value qualities of ether what people want? Is it doing the job that people want it to? And like somebody that is really into real estate might not think of gold as a good store of value. They just have personal preferences. One does one thing and another does another thing and they are store values in different realms. So inside of these asset superclasses are plenty of flexibility in, in what investor demand is or what investors want. And so there's some flexibility there. And it's really just kind of, it starts to, Especially when we talk about some of these early assets, like Bitcoin is only 12 years old, Ether is only six years old. There's a lot of subjective interpretation or subjective analysis as to, you know, is this really valuable, right? At the end of the day, the what's important about the triple point asset thesis is that the patterns are there and they are getting stronger. And so Ether as a store of value asset is uniquely different than Bitcoin as a store of value asset because Ether is a uniquely different asset. It has its own native internal economy that we call DeFi. Uh, and many of these DeFi applications, the way that they work is on collateral. And Ether is one of those collaterals. There are many collaterals on Ethereum, but Ether is one of them. And it's arguably the most trustless form of collateral as the native currency on Ethereum, right? So on, in the Genesis block of Ethereum, the only thing that existed was Ether. You know, there was no tokenized gold. There was no tokenized real estate. There was no tokenized Bitcoin. There, there were no DeFi tokens. There was only Ether, right? And so mm -hmm. as Ether, as the native asset of the Ethereum economy, it has that privileged position of being a native store of value asset. And so it has that reduced trust because when you lock up Ether, in your DeFi application and use Ether as a store of value collateral, you are trusting less intermediaries or uh, less other contracts, or you're just generally trusting less. It's the most trust minimized asset to be a store of value asset in DeFi. One of the best things about store of values is how trust minimized they are. Like real estate and gold, generally pretty trust minimized. If you own a house, like you have the house. There's little subjectivity to that. Like you have the house and the land and the real estate is valuable because people want that. Uh, and same thing with gold. There's like, it's a bare asset. There's not very much subjectivity there. And I think Ether offers that really same compelling, like trust minimized objective nature as like a store of value inside of Ethereum that is a bare asset that requires no trust. And, it, that's, and that's the one unique thing about Ether inside of Ethereum that I think no other asset on Ethereum will ever be able to replicate is the lack of trust that specifically Ether has. And so if you're questioning, is Ether really that good of a store of value? It depends on your frame. Inside of Ethereum, absolutely. It's the best store of value. There is no better store of value inside of Ethereum. If we want to talk about outside of Ethereum and start comparing Ether to gold or Ether to real estate, there's a different conversation to be had there. There's we're di with different reference points. The, the assumption of Ether as a store of value inside of Ethereum 
also kind of has baked in it like, well, I also think Ethereum as an economy is going to grow very significantly. And if, you know, Ethereum starts to become more and more synonymous with quote unquote, the economy, at that point, Ether as an asset becomes, you know, unquestionably a very strong store of value candidate. I think that the framing of in the context of Ethereum, is it all these three things versus is Ethereum all these three different super class, super classes? Is Ether all these three super classes? And does it perform better in these three ways than just general traditional finance and cryptocurrency industry? Those two, I agree, are definitely two different conversations. And thank you for mapping that out. <laughs> Pun intended for our nice. <laughs> podcast name. <laughs> I want to pivot gears a little bit and get into EIP 1559, mm -hmm. which for those listening is basically a two-year-old Ethereum improvement proposal at this point, written up by Vitalik and a few other core devs. Um, if Eric Connor is a core dev or not, I don't know. There's a conversation to be had as to <laughs> what a makes a core dev there. Yeah. <laughs> I think he is. He's on a lot of EIPs, but that was a, that was a funny uh, back and forth I saw. But basically, the EIP burns uh, transaction fees or a majority <laughs> of it uh, as instead of sending it to miners. Uh, and then there's a tip, which can be sent to miners like for a transaction. And the whole point, uh, which I'll let David kind of delve into more here, is to kind of create like a circular economy where Ethereum is the centerpiece of Ethereum's economy. Today, you can do something called out-of-band payments, which is like, if I want to send a transaction on Ethereum, I can technically pay you know, through Signal or WhatsApp or whatever to someone like to a miner to process a transaction. I don't have to use Ether. But with EIP-1559, I have to pay Ether no matter what. So it gives Ether more value ostensibly. Uh, so I just want to ask you, David, how much does your triple point asset theory weigh in or rely on EIP-1559? Yeah, EIP-1559, there's so many different things to talk about. I do want to address the economic abstraction point first, since that's, mm -hmm. that's kind of where, where you left it. The argument of economic abstraction is that we, you know, in theory, we actually don't need Ether as a native asset because you, we can call up a miner and be like, hey, I'll take you out to the movies if you process my transaction. And that's an incentive mechanism to process a transaction that doesn't use Ether. You know, technically, we could do the same thing with Bitcoin miners, right? We could mm -hmm. call up Bitcoin miners and say, like, hey, I'll buy you some ice cream if you process my transaction. Uh, and then we are economically abstracting BTC as well. So like, there's nothing really different here. What EIP-1559 does is it forces the denomination in Ether, saying it must be paid in Ether according to the protocol. Uh, this is very similar to like something like the IRS saying like you must pay your taxes in dollars. This is the same, same kind of pattern. The other important thing about EIP-1559 that I want to bring up is that it actually wasn't brought up with the intention to change Ether's monetary policy directly. Um, again, there's some subjectivity here. One of the original motivations for bringing up EIP-1559 was actually a, a user experience improvement on how to manage gas with Ethereum. And so the way that we current, currently process transactions in both Bitcoin and Ethereum is that there's a, there's a bidding war. There's a block with space in it, and then people bid for those spaces. That market auction mechanism is actually really inefficient. It sometimes causes up to like 30 to 40% overpayment on gas just because of the inefficiency and the mechanism behind how that block space is allocated. What EIP-1559 does is that it sets a base fee that is something very similar to like Bitcoin's difficulty adjustment, where as blocks become fuller, base fee increases. So it's something inherent to the protocol. Um, so the more and more full blocks become, 
uh, the higher and a higher base fee grows. And that's the fee that you have to pay to get included. Uh, and base fee grows higher and higher and higher as there's more demand for blocks. The thing that's supposed to equilibrate um, uh, block space demand for block space supply. And then at some point, there's a cap here, like block space can't get too big or else the base fee grows uh, exponentially into infinity. So there's an e equilibrium here. Currently, when you market auction for gas on Ethereum, you're paying a miner. With base fee, base fee is burnt. And Christine, that's what you were talking about where, you know, currently actually Ether is recycled because when you pay that currency, it's going to a miner rather than getting deleted or getting consumed as energy. In this new model in EIP-1559, it does actually get straight up deleted from the supply. The narrative behind the triple point asset thesis leverages this concept, this ability where like the actual supply of Ether is getting quote unquote used up in order to process transactions. And in my triple point asset thesis, I kind of compared this to like energy in the world or just commodities where like you actually have to consume something and then no one actually gets the actual the end product. Does the triple point asset thesis rely on the like consumption of ether and the non-recyclability of ether. It really, really helps. Um, is it the whole entire thesis? I would say no, um, because there is still going to be something like reservation demand for uh, using ether as the currency of Ethereum. You know, without EIP-1559, that brings us back to the economic abstraction argument. You know, could we just circumvent ether and pay with a different currency? And yes, technically that's true. But like the friction involved with that is so difficult. Like you actually are going to have to coordinate like a secondary currency and you're going to have to uh, use a probably smart contracts or communicate like off-chain communication, uh, like, I don't know, calling someone to coordinate that. And it's just easier if you just use Ether. Uh, and so like, sure, we could talk about all the different ways we could circumvent Ether, but I think we could also talk about all of the efficiency that just using the native currency also brings. I don't think we see anyone in the Bitcoin ecosystem trying to pay for transaction fees with anything outside of, of BTC. I don't see why Ethereum would be any different. Maybe the difference is that there are tokens on Ethereum, so paying with a different asset might be easier. You know, Ether is just as favorable inside of the Ethereum ecosystem as any other tokens, if not more. And so I don't see economic abstraction getting in the way of a triple point asset thesis coming to fruition in the event of EIP-1559 not happening. But I also totally think EIP-1559 is, is absolutely going to happen. Of all EIPs to come to Ethereum, it's got the most support behind it by the basically almost all communities except for miners. Yeah, the miners are not happy. But no, miners are not happy. what it is. <laughs> I mean, speaking of the issuance schedule of ETH, I know that right now we don't have the burn mechanism in place, but mm -hmm. we do have this parallel blockchain, Ethereum mm -hmm. 2.0, that is issuing more ETH it is issuing a certain amount of ETH beyond just the regular block rewards. So beyond the regular rewards that miners are getting on Ethereum 1.0, there's over, what, 75,000 active validators now on Ethereum 2.0 also earning ETH. And we've got these two parallel issuance schedules. I'm curious to know what your thoughts, David, are on so once decentralized finance moves into the space of ethereum 2.0 starts to try and unlock the liquidity and the value of staked ether on ethereum 2.0 that right now is pretty immobile uh, pretty illiquid how do you think that the crypto markets are going to start to respond and start to price all this into account um, given that there's these two issuance schedules for eth now 
and the fact that decentralized finance, there's lots of kind of theories on how we could create bond-like assets to unlock the liquidity of some of that staked ETH. It seems like there's just a lot going on and maybe the relationship is too complex. I'm not totally sure. So I want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, there, there's a lot of different conversations to, to be had there. Uh, if you go to docs.ethub.io and, and type in like Ethereum monetary policy, or you could even type in ETHUB monet ETH monetary policy into Google, it'll, it'll show up. You'll, you'll see a chart that compares ETH supply to ETH issuance rate uh, in two different lines. And that ETH issuance rate, that line is like jagged and unpredictable and goes all over the place, right? And then it had, projects it into 2022. Uh, where it starts to like kind of level out and be a little bit more predictable. And baked into your question is like, with all of this, and we have two chains now, we have the Ethereum beacon chain, we have the Ethereum one chain, both chains are issuing Ether. Like, what is the monetary policy of Ethereum anyways? We have this two source of Ether issuance and it's going to converge. Like, what the hell is going on? That's part of the commitment to Ethereum in its current state. Ethereum is perhaps the only legitimate public permissionless blockchain after Bitcoin. If you use a, uh, are people paying money to use this thing like basis? Like people are paying less than $1,000 a month to use Litecoin. That's how much fees Litecoin is receiving as a blockchain, like $1,000 a month of, of demand, where Bitcoin and Ethereum are consuming over billions and billions of dollars a month of demand. So like provably, there's just two blockchains. The difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum is that Ethereum has decided, has committed to like this early research and development phase in the beginnings of its genesis. That's like the whole entire effort behind Ethereum 2.0. And that's why the monetary policy of Ether is so jagged and unpredictable because the monetary policy of Ether is a tool for Ethereum to reach its goals, right? The difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum is that Bitcoin, the blockchain is meant to serve BTC, the asset, and BTC, the asset, it's number one value proposition to the world is having a sustainable and predictable monetary policy. So I, you could say, you, you can point to any Bitcoin block into the future and you can tell me exactly how many Bitcoins there are in the world. With Ethereum, you can't do that. And the reason why is because Ether as a currency is meant to support Ethereum, the economy. And so Ethereum, the economy is actually the first priority of, of everything including Ether. So Ether, the monetary policy, is meant to make Ethereum, the economy, sustainable. And that's why developers are okay with tinkering with the ETH issuance rate to make sure that the Ethereum economy can actually be supported into the future indefinitely, right? There is a decent amount of research to say that like a blockchain without long-term issuance or long-term sustainable monetary policy might actually not be sustainable. So the Ethereum researchers weren't ready to commit to a monetary policy similar to Bitcoins where, you know, issuance drops to zero and we just kind of cross our fingers and hope that fees can take us the rest of the way. Ethereum researchers want to ensure that the Ethereum economy, which the goal of which is to support the whole world's economy, will be sustainable indefinitely into the future. And so the way that we do that is that we research. And then one, out of that research process is these two chains. We have the Ethereum one chain and then the, the Beacon chain. And both of them are issuing Ether to pay for security. And eventually the ETH1 chain will roll into the ETH2 chain and those issuances will merge and will all be one blockchain once again. At that point in time, the monetary policy of Ether will become a little bit more uh, dependable and sustainable and predictable because we've gotten this research phase out of the way. And one of the benefits of proof of stake and the Ethereum uh, beacon chain is that we are actually able to reduce Ether issuance to below 1% 
as soon as ETH1 gets rolled into ETH2, which is slated to happen sometime in, in maybe late 2021, early 2022, we don't really know. Uh, it's, it'll happen when it's ready. As a result of all this research and R&D phase of Ethereum, we're actually able to reduce Ether issuance to below 1% before Bitcoin can even get below 2%, which I think is pretty crazy. We are accepting a, a beginning phase that is you know, unpredictable and jagged with regards to ETH monetary issuance for the long term, which is you know, long term, low issuance, long term sustainability with the ETH monetary policy. So okay. jumping in for a follow up there, is it responsible to push investors or institutions mainly, I'd say, to purchase Ether as an asset at this point, given that the monetary future is just kind of up in the air? The core developers and the community could quadruple the supply of Ether just because the economy needs it. Well, is it, is it responsible to push anyone towards any investment, I think is, is an interesting question. Mm-hmm. Is it responsible to promote the value and possibility of Ether? And I think absolutely yes. In this cryptocurrency industry, we have certain values and ethos baked into this. You know, it's kind of a populist movement. It's, it's a bottom-up movement, fully transparent where the little guy and the big hedge funds are on equal playing fields. I think this is very relevant in what's going on with Melvin Capital and GameStop yeah. and, and Robinhood. The, the playing field is not even for these market participants. And so the creation of even playing fields, I think, is extremely valuable. If promoting Ethereum is promoting these values, which I think are virtuous values, good values for the world and are lacking in this world, then perhaps, yes, there is an ethical or moral argument for promoting the use of Ethereum uh, to people that are interested in this. You know, yeah. B- Bitcoin has solidified. And when people talk about promoting Bitcoin as an investment, no one really questions that because it's now a legitimate asset. You know, yeah. Ether and Ethereum, they're not there yet because we're still going through that research phase. And like, uh, famously, like Lynn Alden wrote this piece about why she's not interested in Ethereum. And like, it all came down to the fact that Ethereum is like nascent and young. And it's, and it's also, she didn't say this specifically, this was my interpretation, Ether's got $160 billion market cap. On the yeah. macro scale, that's tiny. That's yeah, tiny. Uh, Lynn Alden, famous, well-respected macro investor said, you know, this is just like, it's too nascent. It's too early. And I'm sure, it's, it, sure, we're in this research and development phase and we're growing out Ethereum 2.0. And also Ether's only $160 billion on the macro scale, that on the macro radar, that doesn't even show up. By the time that Ethereum 2.0 is out the door and completely solidified, and that monetary policy is growing its Lindy and legitimacy, the Ether market cap is going to be something larger that is going to be more fitting for the macro perspective. And so when we talk about promoting Ethereum or promoting Ether as an investment, that's what I would promote is that this is not yet ready for a a macro conversation, but by the time that it is, it's going to be a higher market cap. Glad you uh, brought in that Lynn Alden piece. We should put a note to it in the show notes mm-hmm. along with the follow-up that Bankless did uh, because that was definitely an interesting conversation. Got some high-profile names in there. Yeah. And one of the really interesting things that she said in that post was that even with Ethereum Improvement Proposal 1559, we're not sure if the issuance of Ethereum 2.0 will be inflationary or deflationary because it always depends on how many users are using the network, mm-hmm. how much of the fees are being burnt. And that fluctuates mm-hmm. depending on user demand. I was very surprised, but she had very insightful things to say about Ethereum, almost like she's been following the community for years. And I think that's a good signal that like, even at this point, there are very famous economists and 
institutional investors looking at Ethereum may not be investing, but like looking at Ethereum mm. and keeping tabs on them. David, I want to go with you to kind of the, the possibility. Let's just say that Ethereum 2.0 does ship in 2021, early 2022. And we have this stable Ethereum economy where Ethereum is being used to stake, earn interest. There's this decentralized finance economy on top of the layer one staking. In this kind of tug of war that you had talked about in your triple point asset theory, in this tug of war between people using their Ether to lend or borrow on these decentralized finance apps, MakerDAO, Compound, versus using their Ether to help secure the Ethereum 2.0 network through layer one staking. This Tiger War, presumably there's going to be a winner. There's going to be mm. somebody who gathers more popularity than the other. And I'm wondering if the competing effects of this Tiger War is necessarily bad for one of these use cases of Ethereum versus the other. So if there is more people lending and borrowing on decentralized finance applications than helping secure the Ethereum 2.0 network, the bad is that, you know, the security of the network kind of takes a hit, vice versa. So I'm curious to know if the use cases of Ethereum in the long run, if it's set up so that it's contradicting one mm. another, where is the optimal everybody wins all when you use Ether to help secure the network, you're also helping DeFi. Like, where is that possibility in right. the future? Because I'm not seeing it. <laughs> right. So let's use like a, there's like roughly 117 million Ether out there. Let's call it 100 just for this conversation, 100 million Ether out there. I think what you're saying is that like, if DeFi is successful, DeFi will absorb like, I don't know, 50 million Ether. So 50% of the supply, maybe we'll find 20% of the supply on exchanges. Maybe we'll find 10% of supply in people's wallets. And then that remaining, if I did my math right, 20% can be used for Ethereum uh, staking. And so we have like 50% of ETH in DeFi, which is you know two and a half times in this scenario, two and a half times the Ether being staked to the protocol. And so I think what you're saying is there's some risk there because if there is 20 million Ether being staked, all it takes is 20 million and one more Ether in order to do a 51% attack on the network and start to cause some, some instabilities. I think that's what you're saying. And so I think this is where we should get into the conversation of like the inherent stratification of finance and how this pattern that I think is going to emerge out of Ethereum is going to uh, follow some of the same things that we see in legacy financial worlds. The ETH stake rate, which is the, the rate of Ether issuance that you get for staking the network, is very similar to like the risk-free rate, right? It, there's no counterparty except for the Ethereum protocol itself to issue the Ether to you for staking it. Uh, that's the unique value proposition that Ethereum staking offers to the world, right? You can stake your Ether to a protocol, and this entire cryptocurrency industry is based on trusting protocols rather than humans, right? And so there's very much product market fit there. If you stake your Ether, you will get Ether issuance in Ether-denominated terms, and it'll be issued by a protocol without a counterparty. Nothing in DeFi can offer that level of trust minimization, because if you want to put your Ether into a DeFi protocol like MakerDAO, like Compound, like Aave, you are also trusting protocols in a sense, but there is a much more of a human element with some of these applications, right? First off, you're trusting the contract that these applications run on to be sound, right? There can't be any economic exploits. There can't be any backdoors. Uh, there can't be any, you know, any sort of human control over these contracts, which we know DeFi has you know, some less than ideal situations with some of its applications. So 
you're you're a you're trusting that there aren't humans actually steering these DeFi ships, and then if that is also true, you're also trusting that if the humans aren't steering the ship and it is indeed a protocol, that that protocol is actually built correctly. Because these DeFi applications like Compound, Maker, these are protocols on top of the Ethereum protocol. What Ethereum is, is a protocol for protocols, right? And so we have to make sure that all the protocols built on top of the base Ethereum protocol are sound. You know, The entire effort behind Ethereum 2.0 is to make sure that the Ethereum-based protocol is sound so that all these DeFi protocols have sound foundations to be built upon. Every time you go further and further up in the DeFi protocol stack, you are trusting and having more and more dependencies on the DeFi protocols below them. And so that's the, the uniquely compelling part about Ether staking. It's the, it's the risk-free rate. If you don't get your Ether because the protocol messed up somehow, we have bigger issues to talk about, like the entire protocol messed up. According to the plan, that's not going to happen. Yet not according to the plan, like Ether and Ethereum don't make any commitments to any of the applications built on top of it, which is why the e-stake rate is uniquely compelling. What's also worth noting is that there are platforms that can tokenize your deposited Ether. One of these uh, applications is called Rocket Pool. It's a decentralized staking as a service protocol. Now we're talking about a protocol on top of Ethereum, just like MakerDAO, just like Compound. But what Rocket Pool does is it trustlessly, or that's its intentions, is to trustlessly receive your deposits and stake it to Ethereum as an application. And then it also aggregates like node operators and people with less than 32 Ether or people that have more than 32 Ether but don't want to operate a node. It's kind of this decentralized staking as a service platform for people that don't have all the components that want to stake. Uh, they can just stake via Rocket Pool, and Rocket Pool will issue you RE, which is their derivative token, their staked ETH derivative token. So RETH has um, the ETH stake rate baked into it, and so one RETH actually becomes worth more ETH over time because it's accruing the interest fees uh, as part of the Ethereum protocol. Now, you, the, the original point of this conversation was to talk about if there's too much Ether in DeFi and not enough Ether in proof of stake, there is some security issues. Well, we could actually only put Ether into proof of stake and tokenize it via a staking derivative token like RETH and then take that RETH and put that in DeFi instead. And I think that that DeFi version of RETH is more compelling because instead of just putting your Ether into DeFi and then you get one Ether now and then you have one Ether later, you can put our ETH into DeFi, which is one Ether now, but perhaps one and a half Ether later. So there's this incentive. And this is kind of like an M1 over an M0, like the M0 of Ethereum is Ether. You take that M0, you stake it to the network. You and then uh, if you do it with Rocket Pool, you receive a receipt back, which is like an M1. And then you can take that M1 and put that into Compound, put that into MakerDAO, put that into Aave to use as collateral for borrowing. And all of a sudden we don't have this friction between uh, staking in DeFi and staking in proof of stake. And I also don't even think that there is a tug of war there at all because you know, Ethereum staking doesn't need all of the outstanding supply uh, to offer security to Ethereum. You only need some reasonable amount of Ether to stake to Ethereum. The rest of that Ether should be out in the ecosystem. I think the core developers have talked about a, a target of 10 to 15 million Ether being staked to Ethereum 2.0 which is roughly like 7 to 13% of the total supply, which means that like roughly 90% uh, of the supply, Ether is out in the world, out and about. We could call that a security risk because then if there's only 10% of Ether uh, staked to the network, then you only need 10% more. 
But if that 90% of Ether is out actively doing things out in DeFi, it's not available on a secondary market. So accruing a, a second 10% of ETH supply is actually extremely difficult. And will actually, if somebody attempts to do this, will significantly increase the price of Ether because all that Ether is being drained from the secondary markets in order to facilitate some attack on Ethereum. I think every step of the way, it's relatively implausible to generate the amount of capital needed to actually attack the, the staking system. But in the long term, so what I'm hearing from you, David, is that the majority of the supply of Ether, you think of the three super classes, will be used the most, will have the most utility in the eyes of users as a capital asset among the three, like in the long term, not so much on the level of earning interest, like a store of value. The best thing that people are going to see Ether as is capital asset. Is that, is that what I'm hearing right? No, I wouldn't say so. Because when you are depositing your Ether into the consensus layer of Ethereum in order to get those ETH dividends, what you are also doing is you're also implicitly using Ether as a store of value. So it's actually impossible to extract one of these capital assets away from Ethereum and just talk about that in a siloed way because you know, Ether is a triple point asset. The, all of these asset superclasses are related to each other. And so the fact that Ether is a capital asset also makes it a fantastic store of value asset. And it's actually the store of value aspect of Ether that is what provides security to Ethereum, right? It's the $3 billion of Ether that is staked to the Ethereum beacon chain. That is the security wall that you have to get over to attack Ethereum. It's the capital asset that actually incentivizes those deposits, but it doesn't actually create the store of value side of things. Trying to extract one and saying which is the best one or which is the most valuable one, I actually don't think it's a possible thing to do. Interesting. Well, I want to move over to decentralized governance, which is always a really messy topic, but it's a very important one for a system like Ethereum. So one kind of thread I've been pulling on recently is this notion of pragmatism, which for listeners, that's basically, hey, we have ETH2 here. We have most of the research done. Why don't we shuffle this along, get everyone happy? Uh, the downside to that is no, not everything is quite ready. And I think generally it's probably better to defer to Vitalik and the core developers because they seem to know what's going on. But in this instance, we do have the rise of quote unquote ETH killers like Polkadot or Near or whatever. And uh, some DeFi dApps, even major ones that have billions of dollars on them, I've spoken with, uh, they're building out parallel systems if they need to swap chains. And the reason they would do that is just because Ethereum transaction fees have been notoriously high, basically March of last year. David, I want to pose the question to you. How fast is too fast? And what do you think is a good middle road for Ethereum developers to take? When we bring in the subject of like, like Ethereum killers, the Ethereum killer that will actually kill Ethereum is the thing that accrues a monetary uh, premium to its native asset. So for Polkadot, that would be DOT. For near, I don't know, is it near token? I don't know. Yeah, um, I think so. Near, yeah. So like if, if one of these things starts to accrue a monetary premium to its native asset, that starts to be where these things actually do start to compete with Ethereum. Until that happens, yeah, I think, I think it's a waiting game. To me, it's not worth my, my attention until one of these things starts to accrue a monetary premium. And I think your question is like, is Ethereum development moving too quickly because of the centralized teams? Is that, is that your question? Oh, I want to pose it either way. Is it moving too fast or is it moving too slow in your mm -hmm. opinion? Yeah. So there, there's always the economic incentive to build another L1 because then you can you know, sell your token to VCs. It's a monetizable event, right? If you build an L1, you can easily monetize. 
And we definitely saw this in 2017 uh, in the ICO mania where like, you know, ICOs were, became very monetizable. And then, and then we forgot about them and kind of the, that monetizing energy kind of moved into the L1. Uh, and so like, it's easy to generate a bunch of funds with an L1. Um, you know, it's kind of the game to play. And that's kind of why I use that monetary premium as like a litmus test. Like, sure, you just built out a new L1 ecosystem. It, perhaps it's a competitor to Ethereum. Is it really getting that monetary premium that ETH has? Because I can build out an L1. There are like click and deploy blockchains and I can start calling it David blockchain. Does that mean that David blockchain has a monetary premium? No, it does not. That monetary premium is much, much harder to build. This space isn't about how fast can we innovate. It's about money. This is a cryptocurrency revolution. One part is technology. That's the crypto side, the cryptography. The other side is the currency part, which is the money side. And I think a lot of these Ethereum killers forget about that money side. The money is really important. It's, it's, according to Bitcoin, it's the most important thing. Yet I would also say that Bitcoin forgets about the technology side. And I think Ethereum is in this Goldilocks zone where it's both one part technology and one part money. That is really exactly what this whole entire industry is about. Um, the, the centralization and coordination of the Ethereum 1 devs and, and Ethereum 2 devs, the reason why I think monetary premium has accrued to Ether is as a result of the ethos of the ETH2 client teams and the ETH1 teams. And it's because they put the research and development and the ethos of this entire industry first because they understood the ethos of this industry. You know, th- like going back, this is back to trust minimalized, decentralized, uncapturable financial systems. The financial system that comes out of all of this effort will be fantastic as a result of the technology that put it there, right? And so by not cutting corners on an Ethereum 2.0 in the, in the same way that EOS cut corners on its proof of stake decentralized high throughput blockchain, that's the reason like EOS didn't accrue a monetary premium because it cut corners. ETH has the monetary premium because the developers behind Ethereum 1 and Ethereum 2 are resonant with the values that make this industry extremely valuable and extremely useful and extremely revolutionary. And Ethereum killers, or you know, alternatively, Ethereum enhancers, because now these blockchain worlds are going to be kind of intermingled. We have like cross-chain platforms like REN and Cosmos. They're actually just going to be able to plug into Ethereum. Uh, yeah. And to whatever degree that their technological innovations are beneficial, I think Ethereum will actually be able to benefit from that, except Ethereum is going to export its moneyness, its monetary premium and its assets to whatever technological innovations these quote unquote ETH killers bring to the table. I'm glad that we're going to be ending this podcast on the monetary premium of Ether, Ether's moneyness, because the last time you were at a Coindesk event, David, which is last October at Invest Ethereum Economy. You had said that your best prediction is ETH will go to $10,000 by end of 2022. I'm here to check in as a final question. Do you still hold to that? What do you think are going to be some of the key milestones that uh, Ether is going to reach before hitting its 10K mark? Yeah, rather than putting a specific date on it, I would prefer 10K by the end of this like, crypto cycle. Crypto goes in cycles. We think that there's going to be this like mania that pushes prices too high. And then there will be a crash and then prices might go too low after that. These are the patterns that we've seen in, in this industry. Whether the peak of that cycle happens at the end of 2021 or 2022, I don't really know. But I do believe that Ether is going to be easily hitting 10K by the end of this cycle. So yes, I 100% stand by that. There are some conditions that need to be met in order for that 10K ETH to be achieved. We need to get EIP-1559 in. Tim Bako uh, is doing a fantastic job leading that effort. He's giving regular EIP-1559 updates on Twitter uh, and also 
If you go to Tim Bako's Twitter account, you'll be able to find it. People are thinking that that will get shipped right after the Berlin hard fork. Things are still settling, but every indication is that all the, the testing and test nets behind EIP-1559 are, are extremely lively and, and healthy. And so uh, there's nothing to suggest that that won't be happening. And so I do expect EIP-1559 to get included probably in 2021. Uh, and that will just be extremely bullish, not only for uh, Ether, the asset, because it's going to be start getting burned, but it's also going to start knocking what I think is this unfair perception that like ETH, Ethereum people don't ship, right? We've already started to like move that unjust perception of Ethereum down the line because we already have the beacon chain out the door. The, the whole like ETH2 will never ship thing is, is starting to be forgotten. Once EIP-1559 ships, it will show that like, no, Ethereum is actually doing really, really complicated research and development and then also shipping those things. And so not only is it a catalyst for Ether as a monetary asset, but it's also showing that like, you know, all the other promises that the Ethereum uh, teams and research and development uh, promise to bring to Ethereum will also happen as well. And I think that will be reflected in the price of ETH at that time. Gotcha. Well, thank you so much, David, for your time. And thank you for joining us for mapping out ETH 2.0. For anyone who does want to reach out to David or simply keep up to date with what he's working on, you can find him on Twitter and his handle will be found in today's show notes as well. Also, if you haven't already subscribed to Christine and I's weekly newsletter, Valid Points, by going to coindesk.com, you can keep up to date with Coindesk's staking journey and the ETH2 network in general through our newsletter and this podcast. Will and I will be back next week for another episode of Mapping Out ETH 2.0. And we're going to be chatting with Prismatic Lab's Raul Jordan about the many slashing events that have occurred on Ethereum 2.0 network thus far. It's going to be an interesting one. And this one, I think, was one of our longest episodes, but well worth it. So thank you again, David. Oh, happy to do it all, all the time. Finally, if you have any questions you'd like answered on our podcast about ETH 2 or the Valid Points Project, you can connect with us via email at research at coindesk.com or on Twitter at, at CoindeskData. Join us again next week for mapping out Ethereum 2.0, Ethereum as it was meant to be. See ya. You have been listening to Mapping Out ETH 2.0, part of the Coindesk Podcast Network. This episode featured Christine Kim and Will Foxley with guest David Hoffman. Today's show is produced, edited, and announced by Michelle Mousseau with music by Abloom and Tide Electric. Did you enjoy the show? We would love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service and talk to us directly via email at podcasts at coindesk.com.